You're listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, recorded at the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Dr. Lisa Belial is a physician trained in family and preventative medicine, acupuncture, and public health. She offers medical care and acupuncture at Brunswick Family Medicine. Read more about her integrative approach to wellness in Maine Magazine. Here are some highlights from this week's program. We should be taking this and stewarding this great opportunity that we have and this great blessing we have in a way that really sparks something in others. Knowing is, is great and being willing is great, but you must do. You have to put your feet on the ground and do something. So that's what we're trying to do with Earth Calling. If you feel like you've really had a terrible day or you're feeling really down about the state of world affairs, you know, maybe go visit a community garden or visit a school garden, and I suspect that you'll find some new joy after that. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Harding Lee Smith of The Rooms, and Bangor Savings Bank. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast. Show number 152, Earth Calling, airing for the first time on Sunday, August 10, 2014. Summer is in full bloom and the earth reminds us daily of the bounty that we Mainers enjoy. Today we speak with Ted Carter and Ellen Gunter, authors of Earth Calling, a climate change handbook for the 21st century, and Roger Dwaran, founder and director of Kitchen Gardeners International. Join our conversations and learn how we can maintain and foster our relationship with the world in which we live. Thank you for joining us. topic that I find quite important for all of us, but especially for myself and my family, um, is the environment and the earth um, on which we live and with which we live, really. Today we have two individuals who I think feel similarly and probably even more strongly than I do, which is saying a lot. Today we have Ted Carter of Ted Carter Inspired Landscapes. He is a landscape designer and contractor. And also Ellen Gunter, who is a journalist and environmental activist. Ted and Ellen co-wrote Earth Calling, a climate change handbook for the 20th century, 21st century, which was released on Earth Day this year. Thanks so much for coming in and being with us today. Our pleasure. I want to read, uh, there's so much in your book, which is wonderful, and I, I think um, it's a great update for people who know Ted has been a longtime supporter of our radio show and came on has come on as a guest several times. The first time, way, way back, was to talk about the first iteration of this book. This book is so different and so wonderful and alive, and reading it is like taking a breath of fresh air. One of the quotes that I read this morning was by Thomas Berry, our moments of grace are moments of transformation. And there is something very graceful about this book. It is, it's a pause. Is that part of your intention in writing this? The two of us, Ellen and myself, we, we, we are a good team because Elle is a fantastic writer and a journalist and um, environmental activist and a spiritual director. And I, I think that she puts a lot of heart and soul into her writing. And it definitely is a, it's a call to action is what this book is. And we really want people to get ignited and start to go to town on this because it, 
you know, time is of the essence. And I and I I don't know if I'm answering a question exactly properly, but but th- this is really a call to action. It's a sac- it's in the sacred activism series of of, of Random House, and it's and it's really important that we do that. Yeah, and you know, and we love that quote because what he's talking about there is the the moments of uh, of dawn and dusk, you know, and those are the moments where you kind of see the you know the morning birthing and you see the day ending. And, it, and they're so brief, and they're so regular. We can count on them happening every day. But, but everything in life is a transformation. Earth is all about cycles. So, um, so yeah, it's there on many levels. This book is about transformation. It's about what we're undergoing right now on the Earth. It is transforming, and in a lot of you know terrible ways. So each of us has a has a calling and has a role to fulfill, a job to do. So, and, and this is going to require a transformation of sorts from all of us. Reading this book is, um, it's not easy. It's not easy to hear about the things that are going on, going on right now, sure. and have been going on very recently, and have been going on for decades, possibly centuries. It's not easy to know that this is what, this is what we've been doing. Um, let me read a little passage from the introduction. This is something uh, that you wrote, Ellen. Mm-hmm. Ted once reminded me of a trip he had made to visit a Yaqui shaman friend of ours named Lench Arcaleta, with whom he had studied nature and earth spirituality in the Arizona desert. One afternoon, we sat on a bluff overlooking what appeared to be a distant dust storm. It wasn't. The bulldozers cutting deep swaths were making space for yet another subdivision. As we watched, Lench told me his tribe had a name for us. They're calling us. They call us termite people because we are eating the earth's flesh. And by doing that, we are literally eating our future, our world. It is, he said, a form of madness, of suicide. And that really, that hit home for me, that what we're doing is eating into the core of where we're living. Right. Well, Rachel Carson talked about this in Silent Spring. She called it biocide, ecocide. And that was in 1962. And she said if we, and what her, you know, her big platform was DDT. Silent Spring refers, of course, to the fact that there were no birds singing because the preponderance of DDT after World War II was basically not just killing the insects that were, you know, bothering plants and, you know, troubling home gardeners, but it was killing the birds who were eating the berries and, you know, whatnot as, as part of the Earth cycle. And, and so she, you know, she basically was warning us about a, a world we live in now. And she was right. You know, I mean, we celebrate her now as being the person who really started waking us up. But this is obviously a very long process. That was 50 years ago. So it's time, you know, to kind of move to the next level, I think. And it is hard to recognize. It is hard to own this. And she paid for it herself. I mean, she ended up dying of cancer. And they thought largely that there was a chemical contribution to that that cancer. It's not easy to be the voice of conscience. You, you have a quote from Bill Moyers, the most important credential of all is a conscience that cannot be purchased or silenced. And to be that voice is tricky and hard, yeah. but important, so important. Yeah. yeah, it is. It is. And it's, uh, you know, you really find out who your friends are, I guess. And, you know, there are lots of people that, uh, you know, in my family and my, you know, friend hierarchy who just can't walk with us on this, you know. And, and that's okay, you know. I mean, you really have to find a peace with it because it's, if it's something that's really driving you, driving your soul, 
you can't say you can't say no to it you know so we like to say that you know that writing earth calling is our calling this is what we were called to do and when you know i think there's a quote somewhere that uh at the beginning of the book that if you're called on a journey if you decide to take a spiritual journey then it's okay to not do it but if you do it there's no turning back it's a one-way street so ted and i i think you know we were, we were of one mind of this that there is no direction except forward and so it's we can't help ourselves this is what we have to do how did you come to meet each other? I know we talked about this when you wrote the first book, Ted, but give me a little bit of background on how the two of you came to be working on this. Well, as usual, things just sort of happen all together at the same time. <laughs> and it was about 10 years ago uh, that I was starting to go out to the desert to work with Len Chachalada, the, the shaman that you had read about. And he was getting me to see nature and the earth differently, and, and I met Ellen, in that same time period, and we had been going to, going to Chicago for a, a, I went nine times a year actually to set up stage and to work with Carolyn Mace, and Ellen was a classmate of mine, and she would do a narrative after we were done, and it was just incredibly written, beautifully written, and very descriptive, and I just said, whoa, if I ever write a book, I'd love to have her work with me on a book. And sure enough, when I started reading a lot of the information about what was happening to our planet and the world, and it was making me very, very sad, a very dear friend of ours says, do the thing that, that breaks your heart. And I was very, very, it broke my heart. And Elle came up for her birthday in 2007 and said, and I said to her, would you write a book with me and she said sure it was going to be a handbook or a little a little pamphlet <laughs> 16 pages <laughs> little the right. little little did we know it would be almost 300 pages for the first books <laughs> but you know so we've been she's a great there's a friend of ours uh, out in California and he says you know there's there's friends uh, there's friends that we know that we can climb hills with and then there's some friends that we can climb mountains with Ellen's somebody you climb mountains with Ellen I really enjoyed the 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 weaving of um, the work of Carolyn Mace, and not just Carolyn Mace, but um, really Ayurvedic medicine yeah. about the chakras and talking yeah. about mm -hmm. what different um, chakras mean. Mm -hmm. And I know this is something that's become part of our kind of communal lexicon, really many, uh, but at the time that you started doing this, mm -hmm. if you're talking about chakras, people are kind of looking at you a little funny. Yeah. Yeah, well, this is a this is a multi-thousand-year-old tradition. I think was begun by the Hindus and you know picked up by you know other cultures. But the chakras, you know, of course, Carolyn is is where I'd heard about these, and that's and I'd sort of had awareness about it because I studied Tai Chi for 20 years. So you get energy, you get prana, and it's you know prana of Tai Chi and yoga and the chakra system. That there, it's all the same thing. And so I had an, a kind of an awareness of them. But when we started studying with Carolyn, she relates it to your spiritual journey. You know, she talks about how in, in Anatomy of the Spirit that, that you can really track, you have a spiritual anatomy, and that these chakras are basically the foundation of that. So in the first book, we wrote about how the first chakra is our tribal connection if you do yoga. 
and you sit on them and you sit down in a, in a lotus position, your tailbone is the closest thing to the earth and that's the center, of, that's your first chakra. And when Ted and I first started writing Reunion, we said, our first chakra is broken. We have no connection to the earth anymore. That's what's. That's one of the things that's wrong. We don't appreciate it. We don't see it. We don't hear it. We don't get how we can't survive. We are the earth. You know, the Bible, to use one, you know, particular kind of mythology, and uh, which, you know, a lot of us were brought up with, when, you know, creation was begun with a handful of dirt. And so, you know, your ashes to ashes, dust to dust, all that stuff, we, you know, we have that built into our culture that we are the earth. So what, just to kind of extend the metaphor a little bit, um, what Ted and I talk about a lot in here is we put the chakras in there because there is a very physical, spiritual connection here. And your heart is, is what makes you feel compassion. Uh, your fourth chakra, your, your heart chakra. Your sixth is your head, it's your, it's your brain. It's both your cognitive brain and your intuitive brain. But, and so you can cognitively get the data and your heart is like, oh my God, this is really killing me. But the fifth chakra, the fifth chakra your, your speech, your mouth, this is where you make choice. And so that's where the action part is. So that's how we, we tie all these things together in the book by saying, you know, it's like Goethe said, knowing is, is great and being willing is great, but you must do. You have to put your feet on the ground and do something. So that's what we're trying to do with Earth Calling. Uh, a big chunk of the book is reviewing what has been going on. I think many people are now aware of climate change. I think it's less controversial. I think it's more widely accepted that this is an actual thing. Right. But I'm not sure the people understand that some of the things um, that have been used as examples, there's things that have repeated themselves. I mean, you talked about essentially what are dust bowls in China now because of the irrigation system changes. We were experiencing dust bowl issues in the United States a century ago. Right, right. Yeah, and the Dust Bowl was really, I don't know if you saw Ken Burns, you know, if anybody listening has seen, you probably saw the, you know, the, the Dust Bowl show. And one of the reasons the Dust Bowl happened was that Oklahoma was not ever meant to be used for the crops that it was used for. It was, it was prairie grass, which has very different root systems. But the Oklahoma land rush, and whenever that was, the late 1800s or something, um, it brought, it was the kind of the, the last part of the country that was that needed to be settled. They brought everybody in and, and of course they started farming and, and cattle ranching and they changed the ecosystem of the state so that when, you know, they had several years where it was very bountiful, but then all that nutrition in the soil ran out and it could no longer sustain that. So, so when you don't listen and pay attention to what the earth system requires, then you have something like a dust bowl. But yeah, you're right, there are, there are cycles. And the dust, you know, the dust bowls and the, and the incredible amount of pollution in, in China is due to the you know, desertification of, of a lot of their plains areas, a lot of their bread baskets disappearing because of overuse, because their water you know, supplies are dwindling, because they're, they have such a monstrous population they're trying to support with food. So, so yeah, they, uh, these things have happened historically. One of the things that's different now is that it's all happening at once, and it is a repeatable cycle that we cannot get out of. We have the heat, we have the drought, we have the floods, we have the wildfires, and they are now a part of our lives because we haven't maintained a balance with the earth. Ted, I know you have something to say about this. Well, it's, it's all about balance, really, and um, Carolyn has told me that last year I went out, I go out to her work on our gardens every year and I said to her boy nature's always taught me about great abundance but 
She said, Ted, she said, first you have to have balance. Then you can have abundance. And we see that in our health. We see that in our way of life. When we're out of balance, we're out of sync. I mean, what's happening, what's so absolutely tragic, what's happening right now, is that, you know, at the perfect moment when the worms should be available for the birds to eat for their offspring and everything like that, the seasons are all screwed up. So you can't really get to those. It's off off sync so that you can't, they can't be nourished in time to, to feed their young. So we're having die-offs in animal populations and bird populations that that are just part of an imbalance that we have set forth in nature. And what we're doing to nature is not natural. This is not natural. It's very unnatural. And what we're doing as human beings, as earthlings, is also equally as unnatural. It's not natural to be this way. But I think greed... Um, and, and a lot of self-interest drives this, and we have to keep that in check, and we have to sort of bring ourselves home and say, call ourselves home and say, what are we doing here? I mean, are we all going to let this beautiful ecosystem fall into this great abyss, or are we going to are we going to really do something about it? And I just can't, I just can't sit back and not do anything anymore. I just can't do it. Here on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, we've long recognized the link between health and wealth. Here to speak more on the topic is Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. The most important thing you need to begin a personal evolution is heart. To start your journey, you have to take the first step with your eyes and your heart wide open, open to new experiences and possibilities. Without this openness, your efforts, your path toward growth and positive change will be fraught with obstacles that seem insurmountable. So if you find yourself looking forward to good things to come, open your heart and take a brave step toward the future. If you're interested in evolving your relationship with your money, get in touch with us. I'm here to help at tom at shepherdfinancialmain.com. We'll help you evolve with your money. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. Investment advice offered through Flagship Harbor Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Flagship Harbor Advisors and Shepherd Financial are separate entities from LPL Financial. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is brought to you by Bangor Savings Bank. For over 150 years, Bangor Savings has believed in the innate ability of the people of Maine to achieve their goals and dreams. Whether it's personal finance, business banking, or wealth management assistance you're looking for, at Bangor Savings Bank, you matter more. For more information, visit www.bangor.com. Well, we're definitely going to talk about what you can do because that's, any, that's a very big part of this book. So I want to go into that. I... I also, I know that as somebody who has really wanted to do good things in life, it has been overwhelming for me at times, and I know for people around me, to see that, you know, you've no sooner dealt with Hurricane Katrina than you have another natural disaster over here. And, you know, I, was, I read the Barbara Kingsolver book about the monarch butterflies, and, and then it actually 
comes to be. So you, and you feel as much as you're composting and trying to walk instead of drive and you know doing your thing and not eating as much meat and you know not using as much water, it still feels so overwhelming. So how do you reconnect with what keeps you moving forward in a purposeful and mindful way? Lisa, you are a spark, okay? Think of yourself as a spark to ignite the passion in other people because your actions, they may seem very inconsequential, but you influence other people and you're in a place to influence people through your through your radio station, through everything that you do. Right. So just remember that, that you know, we're like, a, you, you throw the pebble in the water and it exactly. ripples. And you're touching a million other people, and especially people. Look, the poor and disenfranchised aren't going to be able to do anything. They're too busy surviving. It's the people like us that are really connected and that are running in this economy that can really do something. You know, we have the resource, we have the influence, and we should be taking this and, and stewarding this great opportunity that we have and this great blessing we have in a way that really sparks something in others. Right, and there, you know, what you're talking about is, uh, is network, you know. I mean, this radio station, this, you know, this broadcast, reaching out is, is networking. As Ted said, you know, you influence one person and you don't know where that goes because it doesn't just happen now. It doesn't just influence somebody now. That happens into perpetuity. You are, you, this, this broadcast will be affecting people for a thousand years if we're still around just because of the nature of influence and because, because how memory works with our species and the collective unconscious and, and a whole bunch of other things. But to get to your first, the first part of your question, yes, everybody, it's frustrating. What can I do? What can I do? How can I, how can I act? And that's, that's really what the action piece is about because everybody's different. You know, if there, however many people are listening to this, every one of you has a different calling. And so, yes, we designed the book so that you could figure that out. You first, you reconnect. You, you get us, you know, a, a, you resensitize yourself to nature, and and but then join a network. Get involved with other people. That's where that alchemy of action comes in. That's where it generates, and it and it is completely out of control. I've seen this time and again. I'm a big activist with the Keystone XL pipeline, and that started out with 1,253 people getting arrested over a period of two weeks, and now it's it reignited the environmental movement there's no way these are there there there's it's bled over into the fracking movement it's all over the world now so that was you know you never know how your what your one action is going to do in the long term so get into a network join one of these organizations the infrastructures are all set up already and then that's that alchemy that begins you quoted as you're talking about stepping into your soul's journey mm -hmm. um, Teilhard de Chardin yeah. It would seem that our time is calling us to awaken from our benumbed and bewitched state to a wonder at and reverence for the astonishing, miraculous, and mysterious creation of which we are a part. And I think this is important. I think that first we have to start with that wonderment. We have to start with that reconnection to get out there and, and really feel this in some way so that it's not just something that we're dealing with on an intellectual right, level. Right, exactly. It's that, it's that, it's that heart connection. We, can, you know, we get it you know, cognitively. 
we can get it intuitively. And you know, that compassionate heart is what is awakened when you're in nature. When, you know, I like to tell people, go out and sit, sit outside. Nobody goes to Times Square to relax. They go out into nature. And your state is emblematic of that. You are the one, you are a magnet for this. So people are drawn here because it's so beautiful. It's so peaceful, it regenerates people, it heals them. This is, you know, it's just an amazing place to be. So go sit outside and just take some deep breaths. And when you sigh, that's when your cognitive side is giving way to your, you know, to your intuitive side, that genius of, of, that, that is innate in us. So, you know, Matthew Fox says, he's a modern day mystic, and he says, we are starved for awe we are starved for it. We want to be blown away by, by something besides video games and you know FX on movies. We want to see what's really there. That's part of our connection. That's what nature gives us. Nature is built in awe. You also quote two individuals or two stories of individuals who listened to themselves and went on and did things that I think have become quite amazing. You, you spoke about Rudolf Steiner and the biodynamics movement, and also about Fintorn. Yeah. And anybody who has, um, these are just, these are names that come up over and over and over again. And yet these two, these two groups of inter, in, individuals, the caddies at Fintorn and Rudolf Steiner, they were considered a little bit... Loony. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So why was it important to share these stories in Earth Calling? Well, I'm going to, I have a Steiner garden, I have a Rudolf Steiner garden, a biodynamic garden in at my, my home, and uh, I work with, uh, ben, ben Steele has been in here at the studio, and we've talked about the Rudolf Steiner journey, and um, really, uh, you say, of course, Steiner was a, a savant, a, 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 an incredible, incredible human being that comes around once every hundred years, these people. I think that we have to be the the Katie's, the the, the the Steiners. You know, all of us. We're a little bit different. You know, one thing that really hit home to me was uh, a friend of mine said, "You know, you, you, you." He said, "He said, Ted, you're an eccentric man." And I said, "I said, uh, well, do you know what that means?" And I said, "Well, that means I'm different." And he said, "No. That means you live outside the circle." And and I said, "Do you know what that?" people outside the circle do and I said mm, no he said they change the world he said how can you live inside the circle and change the world and he said you know and then he was giving me a lesson that I needed to hear and because I was trying to conform again but I was didn't want to conform again because that's not who I am I've always operated outside the circle and it takes a lot of courage to do that, but it's the it's the place if you really want to, to do things in your life that really make a difference, you have to just go out there and make it happen. Right. Well, that, and that's that's just who you are. You can't even help yourself. You know. I mean, I've well, known you for what 10, 12 years now, and that's who you are. You know, when we were doing the first book, we went out to Northern California because Ted had met somebody doing. You know, you were working with the Pfeiffer Institute, or I forget which right, one, but uh, right. which is the where you learn about biodynamics and why you would want to do it. And so he hooked up with this guy who was part of a French uh, wine family. And he had left this, I don't know which one it was, it doesn't matter, but he had left his family's uh, estate and cashed out. And, and he said, I just want to find out how I can grow wine grapes 
without using pesticides and fertilizer. That's so unnatural. So long story short, he ended up uh, taking biodynamics and became very, uh, you know, a, a practitioner, a master practitioner. Went to, he start, we met him in Northern California in the wine country and he took us on a tour of one of the vineyards that he takes care of, which was winning awards. And I mean, you eat these grapes and you just kind of buzz. They're so fantastic. So we're up on a hill overlooking, you know, his biodynamic vineyard and and all the preps and all the stuff that are part of that, you know, that discipline. And so I'm looking around and I said, um, so all of these are, you know, because you have to have biodynamic certification. You have to maintain that to be able to call yourself a bio-D, you know, practitioner or, you know, product. So I'm looking around at all these beautiful vineyards around him, and I said, so they're all biodynamic? And I'm not going to imitate his French accent, but he said, no, you know, that's conventional, which means pesticides and fertilizer. That one's conventional, that's conventional. And I said, you're surrounded by conventional agriculture? How do you maintain your, your certification? All that stuff blows over here. And he just grinned at us, and he shrugged, and he said, because it's up to the earth. And Ted and I went, what? I mean, that was like our big lightning moment because what he was saying was we have the capacity to work with the earth to make agreements with the earth the agreement you make with biodynamics is you never use pesticides and fertilizer you use the the preps that are part of the you know the the discipline of doing bio-d and you know ted could talk a lot more intelligently about that you can find out more about it just by googling biodynamics but this is what they were using in finhorn um and, and nobody really knew what that was and but the point is is that when you work in concert, when you are in partnership, when you are connected to nature and you make this promise, then this is what happens. This is what Ted's garden is crazy. I send BioD preps to friends and they go, I have a lemon tree that I've had for um, you know 18 years and now it's putting out, it never even had lemons on it before. And I said, don't, you can never use, this is your agreement, you make this agreement. Well, people think it sounds crazy. I will promise you, it is incredible. It's just incredible. It doesn't matter if you believe it, just do it. Well, and in Findhorn, you, you gave the example of enormous broccolis that right. were 50 pound broccoli that were they had to haul out with a truck. Yeah. Right. And this was in Scotland, I yeah, believe, right. on they very rocky Scotland. coast with not very much soil, yeah. but it was just the way that it was Gorse cared and broom for. is what they call it. Yeah, it was sand. So. There was it, it looked like there was no nutritional value in it. They grew this insane garden and people came from all over the place. They I forget, you know, from for horticultural societies, they did analysis of the soil. And it was completely rich in everything that was needed because they worked in where they worked in concert with nature. So this gets me to I think a really important question, and that is how do people? This is Earth Calling, a climate change handbook for the 21st century. You, this is a call to action. Yes. You want people to work in concert with nature, with themselves, their lives, the Earth. Where do people start? Well, um, you know, it's spring. It's spring, and so thank God, finally. You know, I'm, I live in Chicago, so you know we're, we have a, we're having a very late spring right now. Um, you know, one of the first things I would say is, what's available to you right now? What's available is gardens. Begin to garden. We recommend that you get heirloom seeds. You know, we have a whole thing in there, as you know, on GMOs, and you know we're very much opposed to those. They're not natural, no matter what they say. Um, so, but you know, we were asked that question the other day, and. You know, yes, just go out and start putting your hands in the earth. Start there. 
start there and just do some potted plants. If you don't have a garden, then you know, go work in a garden. Go to the farmer's markets. Uh, get your Find the seed purveyors there. Once you start investigating, a whole world opens up to you. This is, this is not weird and it's not um, specialized. It is becoming the norm. It is becoming the norm. Everybody is getting this. Eat local, buy local, find out who is, where your meat comes from. You know, if it's coming from, as Ted said, if it's coming, if it says it's grass-fed, does that mean it's being grown in Brazil on what used to be rainforest? You don't want to support that. And you don't know what they're doing to the grass before, you know, the, the cattle are eating it. So, I mean, I think our book is a really good prep. You know, we, we spent a year, and we, before we wrote Reunion, we spent a year doing nothing but reading and, and researching. And when we finally got to the point where we kept reading the same thing, kept no matter what the source, we were finding the same sorts of opinions and ideas and data and statistics and, and long-term tests. And we said, okay, it's time to start writing. We've, we have maxed the information for now. We've read dozens of books, thousands of articles, hundreds of, you know, of, of blogs, and, you know, and, and we researched and researched, and we never took any, any resource on, you know, on, as first blush. We always investigated. So um, there is so much to do, and you can just start as simple as sticking your hands in the earth, growing a, you know, getting an organic tomato plant and growing some tomatoes for yourself. Also, I'm going to interject about children. Yeah. You know, you get your, if you're a young mother, you're get young your father, involved. get your children involved. Yeah. This is stewardship. That's right. My mom and dad, from when we had our little suburban home in Chicago, you know, they, they were out landscaping on the weekends. We were, I was mowing the neighbor's lawn. We were outside all the time. Put the computers away. Put the cell phones away. Put all that technology away and go out and play in nature right. and participate in what this beautiful earth is all about. Right. Well said. Well, Ellen, we're fortunate that you flew in to be with us here in Maine. I know that you're flying out again back yeah. Yeah. very soon. Um, you're going back to Chicago. I am, back to Oak Park. Back to Oak Park. And Ted, I know you're extremely busy as well. It's a very busy time of year for you. So the fact that you both took the time to be with us in the studio and have taken the time to write this book, Earth Calling, um, it says a lot to me. How do people find out about Earth Calling and how do people... Um, well, it's distributed by Random House, so it's the easiest thing to do is to go to Amazon or go to Barnes & Noble. Um, I know there are a few bookstores around Portland that are starting to carry it, so uh, you can request it and they will order it for you, but it's widely available. It's also a Kindle, so you can just go onto Amazon and in three minutes it'll be on your Kindle or your iPad or whatever. I'm going to give Longfellow Books a plug because they have been very supportive of this book, and I'm going to be doing a reading for them. So. Um, and I love Longfellow books, so uh, that's that's what I want to say. <laughs> well, we love Longfellow books here in Portland too. So people who yeah. live in the Portland, Greater Portland area, Longfellow books is a great place to go for Earth Calling, a climate change handbook for the 20th century, and to read more um, about the work that Ellen Gunter and Ted Carter have been doing. Thank you again for everything that you're doing and for all that you will continue to do. Thanks Thank for you very us much. Thank, Thank you, you. Lisa. As a physician and small business owner, I rely on Marcy Booth from Booth, Maine to help me with my own business and to help me live my own life fully. Here are a few thoughts from Marcy. When was the last time you took a break from what you were doing, from the work that was piled up on your desk, and just looked up? I know that during the course of my days, I often forget to take a moment or two to just breathe, look up at the sky, and dream. 
terrible that I have to remind myself to breathe, but when I do, I feel energized because in those moments, I'm able to let go of the daily grind and think more about what I want to accomplish, how I want my business to grow. Sometimes those are the aha moments. If we all took a few moments out each day to stop what we're doing and dream a little about our business futures, not only would we feel a great sense of calm, but we may come to realize that these dreams can, in fact, come true. I'm Marcy Booth. Let's talk about the changes you need. BoothMaine.com This segment of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com. About three years ago, I watched a very interesting TEDx talk by a local man who's doing good things in the area of um, local foods, and in fact, personalizing and localizing the food supply. Today, we're speaking with Roger Dwaran, the founder and director of Kitchen Gardeners International, a Maine-based nonprofit network of over 30,000 individuals from 120 countries. He is taking a hands-on approach to relocalizing the food supply. Thanks so much for coming in and talking to us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Roger, I was inspired by your TEDx talk, which I believe was held, um, well, I know it was held right up the street here in Portland, because it made gardening seem so accessible. It, 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 you said that I believe you saved like um, several thousand dollars by planting your own garden and eating your own organic food in your own house, and it just made it seem like something that any of us could do. Well, that's really my life's work. I'm just trying to um, help more people to grow at least a little bit of their own food. And you're right, it is accessible. It's, um, it's not rocket science. It's a question of putting a seed in the soil at the right time um, and giving it a little bit of care and then cultivating that plant once it starts to poke its nose through the, through the earth. So it doesn't have to be complicated and it can be done with very little space. Um, and if you happen to have a little bit more space, you can actually grow quite a bit of food and save quite a bit of money. There was a big effort um, that dealt with quite a big space, actually, with President Obama and his wife several years ago when he was inaugurated for the first time. And you had a, you had a part in that. I think um, I did have a little bit of a hand in that. I, I continue to give... Um, 99.9% of the credit to First Lady Michelle Obama because she's the one who actually stepped up and said, let's plant this. But um, my organization, Kitchen Gardeners International, had run a campaign called Eat the View, which was a social media campaign to really build support and enthusiasm for the idea of having a kitchen garden planted at the White House once again. Um, and it proved to be successful. We got a lot of attention, um, but I think primarily we got a lot of people excited that we could actually get this garden planted. This seems to be something that more and more people are interested in. I'm seeing more chickens in people's backyards. I'm seeing more beehives in their gardens. Um, for a while, though, it we, we gave away the power. We, we let somebody else make our, create our food for us. How did that happen? Well, that's sort of one of the things that I was addressing in my TEDx talk, which was titled A Subversive Plot. Um, 
And what I said was that I think that gardening is sort of a subversive activity in the sense that um, by growing a little bit of your own food, you're, you're doing something that's socially subversive in the sense that you're taking some power into your own hands. And you're also, um, at the same time, automatically taking that power away from some other um, forces in the world, which I think tend to be these bigger forces um, like multinational companies that have been um, sort of enabled by our political system, but also by ourselves. We need to t sort of own our, our own actions. We've allowed um, the Monsantos and the Crafts and the Coca-Colas um, to n not only find their ways into um, our supermarket shelves, but also into um, our schools and places like that. So I think, you know, we've sort of gone astray over the years. It's It's been... Uh, more of a slow train wreck as opposed to just a, a violent car crash. Uh, but the, the fact is we really are on our way back. We're in the midst, I think, of a full-blown local foods revolution right now. And um, that's where I'm putting my energy. Are you originally from Maine? I was born in Chicago, um, so I'm not officially a real Mainer, um, but I moved here when I was about uh, two years old. Um, so I'm pretty close. <laughs> So you have been, uh, you have experience with attempting to grow things here in Maine for quite a long time. I did grow up in a family that had a garden, so I'm pretty um, tuned into the, the seasons here and what works and what can't. But I'm also one of those people who um, doesn't take no for an answer that, that nicely in the sense that I'm continuing to try my artichokes every year. I think over the past three years, I've had like three artichokes. Um, but I think that that's part of the fun for me is just to push the envelope a little bit um, and to see what we can get out of our, our soil and our seasons here in Maine. And what you ultimately find out is that we can get a lot. Uh, you and your wife have three boys? That's correct. And how do they help you out with gardening in your household? Well, they help quite a bit with the eating. Um, so they're ages 14, 16, and 22. And they have been actively involved over the years with really all the different stages, uh, just because I thought it was important to give them that education, you know, as well as their uh, more formal academic education, just to know, you know, where does food come from? And to um, feel some empowerment in, in knowing that they could actually grow a potato if they wanted to, or they know sort of the life cycle of a bean um, and they know that it doesn't sort of come pre-chopped in your plate. You have to do some work actually after the harvest too. Um, so they know their, their stuff pretty well. And in fact, my two youngest sons um, ran a, a farm stand from our front yard, um, not last summer, but the summer before, just because they were too young to get sort of a real summer job. And I said, you know, why don't you just have a go at it and see what happens? Um, I don't think they're going to go on to become professional farmers, <laughs> but uh, I think they really learned the value of, um, of a dollar and learned the value of hard work and understood also how to run a small business. It's not just this type of thing where you show up and, um, you know, with your freshly cut salad greens and suddenly the market is there. You have to actually get out there and let people know that, um, that you've got something for them. Um, so yes, they've been involved and um, I'm trying to keep them involved, but they're, they're getting into their teens now and they're very active in their own little things too. 
Yes, I had that experience when we, my family tried to have a community garden plot, and my son was far more interested in Little League than he was in weeding. But it was nice because whatever small amount of touch he was able to have with the garden, he appreciated it, and his younger sisters did too. So as long as we didn't get too stringent about requirements for the garden, it, it felt like it worked okay. Yeah, I think that makes really good sense because it's meant to be a pleasure. I I also sort of have to um, pull myself back a little bit and remind myself, you know, this is supposed to be fun. Um, so don't sort of set yourself up in such a way where it just becomes another task because um, that takes the, the, the joy out of it. Um, so I think you're right. For, for children in particular, you know, you, you need to teach them the value of work that is not going to just happen on, on its own. But you also have to keep it light and keep it fun. Your background is not just with uh, local foods and with gardening. You also have a background in journalism, in activism, in uh, business, and I think international relations as well. So how did you pull all of these together and create this 30,000-member organization, Kitchen Gardeners International? Well, it, it and I am a work in progress and that I'm still trying to pull it together. But um, I think I've sort of landed where I'm supposed to be in the sense that um, I did study uh, international relations and diplomacy and, and got a master's degree in that. And so I think I'm sort of an ambassador for the garden world now, uh, just trying to, to spread the good news about what kitchen gardens can do. Uh, but you know, to answer your question, it was just really a lot of hard work, basically, but um, a labor of love in the sense that I really enjoy what I'm doing. I'm lucky to be able to do what I'm doing, where I'm doing it, and to see the results, um, not necessarily on a daily basis, because there are a lot of days where you just work sort of in the void without necessarily getting the, the feedback. But with the, the work that we're doing in particular right now, um, I think we really are changing a lot of people's lives. We're really trying to focus on um, instead of the campaigns that we did for the, the garden at the White House, we also did some campaigns to protect the right to garden in one's front yard, which got a lot of um, national attention and some international attention. Our focus now really is helping other people who would like to grow their own food to do so, especially uh, working via schools and through community gardens and churches. Uh, prisons, libraries, sort of all the above, um, by providing mini-grants to those organizations so that they can grow gardens. You also have a wealth of information on your website that is very practical. You know, if people ask questions about how do you store seeds, and and having kind of poked around there, I think that's, that's very helpful, because I think there's a barrier, if you haven't grown up gardening, there's a barrier between somehow putting your own fingers in the soil, you know, getting to that place. I think you're right. That's part of the enabling that I'm referring to in the sense that, you know, we're providing some um, money and some seeds and supplies to people to help them plant gardens across the country and around the world. But there really is this missing piece, which is the education piece, too. Because, as I think you know very well, here in the United States, uh, here in Maine even, we're one, two, in some cases maybe three generations removed from growing a substantial part of our own food. Um, so we need to think about sort of the social structures that we have in place to allow people to kind of get back to that. 
And if you're lucky, you grew up in a family where you had a parent or maybe a grandparent who could teach you some of those things. But there are a lot of people who aren't so fortunate. And so we have to set up other ways to sort of pass on that know-how, um, whether it's a website or whether it's you know, writing an article for a magazine um, or you know, becoming involved maybe in a local garden club or just you know, sort of reaching across the white picket fence to your neighbor and saying, you know, I see that you're you know, having a go at raspberries this year. You know, how's that going? Um, you know, is there something that I can help you with maybe? There's also something very healing in addition to sort of healing the person physically by eating locally grown organic food, which is of course good for the body. Um, I've noticed on, I believe it's your blog, people are writing in and saying, you know, I was in, I was a soldier in the war and I've come back and I've done this gardening and it somehow is, um, is, is, is a salve to my, to my, my wounds, really. That was a, a project that we helped fund in New Orleans. Um, I think it's actually on a, uh, a marine base. And um, it was once again through this program called Sew It Forward. And that's the type of story that I just find um, so refreshing and um, makes you want to sort of get up again and, and really go for it the next day. Because you do see that people really are um, getting a lot more than simply vegetables out of kitchen gardens. Um, for some, like that Marine who had done two uh, tours of duty, one in Iraq and one in Afghanistan, that, that garden really is very important for him. It's, it's about sort of getting back to um, a better place in his life. Uh, but we've also given out grants to prisons, and the stories coming out of um, those places I think are just as uh, powerful where people are realizing that you know their life, for whatever reason, um, went off on the wrong track, and maybe they did some harm um, to others uh, through their lives. But um, the garden was like a way of reconnecting with themselves, reconnecting with the earth, um, and trying to get things right in their lives. So I, I think we, I at least feel like I sometimes need to rem remind myself of that, that um, I love food, so I always think of the garden in terms of food, but the garden can be much more than just food. Yes, I know that when I, there was always a woman that would put flowers out by the side of the road, and I would go running by them, and the flowers were free, so she'd say free flowers, and I'd go running down the road with my bouquet of flowers, and it just, it like made my day. <laughs> it made my week, it made my year. I mean, to know that Here's somebody who is, out of the goodness of her heart, cultivated these beautiful things that were going to end up on my table. And even though I'm not as much of a gardener, mm -hmm. um, it, it was just this little bit of beauty that really touched my day. Well, beauty, and it's, it sounds like generosity, too. And um, I think that's one of the things that um, I particularly enjoy about the work that I'm, I'm able to do is that uh, I just realized that there are so many people out there who are just doing this because they know it's the right thing to do, um, either for themselves or their families or their communities. And I sometimes refer to them as garden angels, and that I think they're just sort of, you know, fluttering amongst us, um, and they're volunteering at their their school with a, a school garden project, or they're planting, you know, an extra row for a food pantry. So I think that that's if you feel like you've really had a terrible day, or you're feeling really down about the state of world affairs, you know, maybe go visit a community garden or visit a school garden and. I suspect that uh, you'll find some new joy after that. <laughs> 
There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines, carefully prepared by experienced professionals, coupled with care and attention, focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled, you need attention, advice, and individual care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be. Experience chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, Maine seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants The Front Room, The Grill Room, and The Corner Room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch lobstermen bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit www.theroomsportland.com. I remember reading something that, um, I, don't, I can't remember the, the, the name of the book, but it was about asparagus, and it was about how it's like a three-year cycle, something like that, to get to an actual asparagus stock that you can put in your mouth and eat. There's some patience that is required. There is often. a lot of patience with asparagus. We've sort of moved asparagus out of our garden plan. Um, but I, I remember when we did put it in, um, if you've heard of the, the international movement called slow food, well, asparagus should be sort of the, the poster child for that in the sense that it does take three years. Um, but after you've got your bed going, it can last a long, long time. So it's one of those things where um, it does pay off in the long term. And there are other things that are still growing that people started the process with, you know, years and years ago. We, we interviewed somebody on the show who really enjoyed doing work with um, apples, heirloom apples. Mm-hmm. And in Maine, um, we seem to have a lot of different varieties that have been planted quite a long time ago that we are able to access now. Well, there's a lot happening with um, with apples in Maine. We, we've we've had it all going on for a long time, but I'm in, very enthusiastic about some of the new things in terms of people starting to make cider, hard cider. I think there's like a whole economy that can be built around some of these things. Um, and yes, I mean apples are one of those great investments. You know, I think there was another quote about you know when you know, the best time to plant an apple tree was probably 10 years ago, but the second best time is today. (laughs) So, um, you know, put the effort in and, you know, five years from now, you're going to have a great harvest and it's just going to keep on going if you, um, you know, put the work in to, to prune your tree and things like that. I think I remember seeing something on either your website or your blog about Alice Waters. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, she's one of my heroes. <laughs> and she's and she's one of my heroes, too. And I think of her as being someone um, much like yourself who really has had to work at this thing for a long time, really needed to sort of start planting that garden and start talking about local foods um, so far before anybody else was really thinking about it. Yeah, she's been at it for a long time, and she's um, very charismatic and very persevering. Um, I actually give another talk these days called uh, Gardening Our Way Back to the Future, where I go through some of the milestones really over the past century, and I have a lot of pictures in that. And I found this one picture 
um, from 1970 of Alice Waters waiting tables at her own restaurant, um, Chez Panisse in Berkeley. And I mean, I knew that she was this, you know, towering figure in the American food system, but it was just, uh, it really touched me to see her as a young woman um, in 1970, you know, obviously very idealistic and full of good energy, um, but just, you know, putting the work in, putting the work in of, you know, doing the very unglamorous work of, of waiting a table, but doing it probably also just because, you know, she loved it and she wanted to see, you know, what was going to be the reaction once the, the, uh, the customer started actually biting into her creation. It seems like for you, this is also a labor of love. Very much so. I mean, I love gardening, and I love that I can um, get paid for doing what I think is good work and the right work. Um, and it's uh, it's one of those things maybe that wouldn't have been possible, let's say, 10 years ago or 20 years ago here in Maine because you would have needed to be in a much bigger city, maybe next to some um, some bigger foundations and philanthropies and things like that. But um, now because of the internet, you know, you're able to do all kinds of things and build your support base um, pretty much anywhere you want to. So I, I do consider myself really lucky to do the work that I'm doing where I'm doing it. Roger, how can people find out about Kitchen Gardeners International and the other work that you are doing? Well, you mentioned that we have a website, kgi.org, um, and it's a, a website that has a lot of bells and whistles built into it in terms of social networking tools so that people can um, add a blog post or a photo or a recipe. Um, but we also do um, get involved in the social networks like Twitter and Facebook. Um, we have a very big Facebook uh, population, so people who are really Facebook people should just check us out there and join the conversation. We really encourage people to to share their know-how as well, just because um, while I might know a thing or two about uh, growing a tomato in Scarborough, my knowledge isn't necessarily going to transfer over to somebody who wants to do the same thing um, somewhere down in the deep south. Uh, but somewhere among our 30,000 plus people, you know, we'll have somebody who can probably help you out. Roger, it's really been a pleasure to have you in today. I told you before we started that you have been on our list of people we want to talk to on our radio show from the very beginning. So I'm, I'm thrilled that you took the time to be with us. Um, we've been speaking with Roger Dwaran, the founder and director of Kitchen Gardeners International. I encourage anyone who's listening to go back and find your TEDx talk. It's quite interesting and amusing. Also to look at your website and perhaps um, take a few steps in the direction of doing their own gardening. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you, Lisa. You've been listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 152, Earth Calling. Our guests have included Ted Carter, Ellen Gunter, and Roger Dwaran. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit doctorlisa.org. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Dr. Lisa Facebook page. Get Twitter updates by following me as D-O-C-T-O-R-Lisa and see my daily running photos as Bountiful1 on Instagram. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here.
We are privileged that they enable us to bring the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our Earth Calling Show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Harding Lee Smith of The Rooms, and Bangor Savings Bank. Dr. Lisa Belial is a physician trained in family and preventative medicine, acupuncture, and public health. She offers medical care and acupuncture at Brunswick Family Medicine. Read more about her integrative approach to wellness in Maine Magazine. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Susan Grisanti, and Dr. Lisa Belial. Our assistant producer is Leanne Wiemet. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Our online producer is Kelly Clinton. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is available for download free on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Thank you.